0: Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms audiobook. I and my chimney by Herman Melville. I and my chimney, two gray-headed old smokers, reside in the country. We are, I may say, old settlers here, particularly my old chimney. Which settles more and more every day. Though I always say, I and my chimney, as Cardinal Wolsey used to say, I and my king, yet this egotistic way of speaking, wherein I take precedence of my chimney, is hereby borne out by the facts, in everything, except the above phrase, my chimney taking precedence of me. Within thirty feet of the turf sided road, my chimney, a huge, corpulent old hairy eight of a chimney, Rises full in front of me and all my possessions. Standing well up a hillside my chimney, Like Lord Ross's monster telescope, Swung vertical to hit the meridian moon, Is the first object to greet the approaching traveler's eye, Nor is it the last which the sun salutes. My chimney too, Is before me in receiving the first fruits of the seasons. The snow is on its head air on my hat, And every spring, as in a hollow beech tree, The first swallows build their nests in it, but it is within doors that the preeminence of my chimney is most manifest. When in the rear room, set apart for that object, I stand to receive my guests, who, by the way, call more, I suspect, to see my chimney than me, I then stand, not so much before, as, strictly speaking, behind my chimney, which is, indeed, the true host. Not that I demur. In the presence of my betters I hope I know my place." from this habitual precedence of my chimney over me, some even think that I have got into a sad rearward way altogether. In short, from standing behind my old-fashioned chimney so much, I have got to be quite behind the age too, as well as running behind-hand in everything else. But to tell the truth, I never was a very forward old fellow, nor what my farming neighbors call a forehand one. Indeed, those rumors about my behind-handedness are so far correct— that I have an odd sauntering way with me sometimes of going about with my hands behind my back. As for my belonging to the rearguard in general, certain it is, I'd bring up the rear of my chimney, which, by the way, is this moment before me, and that, too, both in fancy and fact. In brief, my chimney is my superior, my superior, too, and that humbly bowing over with shovel and tongs, i much minister to it, yet never does it minister or incline over to me but if anything, in its settlings, rather leans the other way. My chimney is grand seigneur here, the one great domineering object not more of the landscape than of the house, all the rest of which house, in each architectural arrangement, as may shortly appear, is, in the most marked manner, accommodated not to my wants, but to my chimneys, which, among other things, has the center of the house to himself, leaving but the odd holes and corners to me. But I and my chimney must explain, and as we are both rather obese, we may have to expatiate. In those houses which are strictly double houses, that is, where the hall is in the middle, the fireplaces usually are on opposite sides, so that while one member of the household is warming himself at a fire built into a recess of the north wall, say another member, the former's own brother, perhaps, may be holding his feet to the blaze before a hearth in the south wall the two thus fairly sitting back to back. Is this well? Be it put to any man who has a proper fraternal feeling. Has it not a sort of sulky appearance? But very probably this style of chimney building originated with some architect afflicted with a quarrelsome family. Then again, almost every modern fireplace has its separate flue, separate throughout, from hearth to chimney top. At least such an arrangement is deemed desirable. Does not this look egotistical, selfish? But still more, all these separate flues, instead of having independent masonry establishments of their own, or instead of being grouped together in one federal stock in the middle of the house, instead of this, I say, each flue is surreptitiously honeycombed into the walls, so that these last are here and there, or indeed almost anywhere, treacherously hollow, and in consequence, more or less weak. Of course, the main reason of this style of chimney building is to economize room. In cities, where lots are sold by the inch, small space is to spare for a chimney constructed on magnanimous principles. And, as with most thin men, who are generally tall, so with such houses, what is lacking in breadth, must be made up in height. This remark holds true even with regard to many very stylish abodes, built by the most stylish of gentlemen. And yet, when that stylish gentleman, Louis le Grand of France, would build a palace for his lady, friend, Madame de Maintenon, he built it but one-story high, in fact in the cottage style. But then, how uncommonly quadrangular, spacious, and broad, horizontal acres, not vertical ones. Such is the palace, which, in all its one-storied magnificence of Languedoc marble, in the Garden of Versailles, still remains to this day. Any man can buy a square foot of land and plant a Liberty Pole on it, but it takes a king to set apart whole acres for a grand trianon. But nowadays it is different, and furthermore, what originated in a necessity has been mounted into a vaunt. In towns there is large rivalry in building tall houses. If one gentleman builds his house four stories high, and another gentleman comes next door and builds five stories high, then the former, not to be looked down upon that way, immediately sends for his architect and claps a fifth, and a sixth story on top of his previous four. And not till the gentleman has achieved his aspiration, not till he has stolen over the way by twilight, and observed how his sixth story soars beyond his neighbor's fifth, not till then does he retire to his rest with satisfaction. Such folks, it seems to me, need mountains for neighbors, to take this emulous conceit of soaring out of them. If, considering that mine is a very wide house, and by no means lofty, Ought in the above may appear like interested pleading, As if I did but fold myself about in the cloak of a general proposition, Cunningly to tickle my individual vanity beneath it. Such misconception must vanish upon my frankly conceding, That land adjoining my alder swamp was sold last month for ten dollars an acre, And thought a rash purchase at that, So that for wide houses hereabouts there is plenty of room, and cheap. Indeed so cheap, dirt cheap, is the soil, that our elms thrust out their roots in it, and hang their great boughs over it, in the most lavish and reckless way. Almost all our crops, too, are sown broadcast, even peas and turnips. A farmer among us, who should go about his twenty-acre field, poking his finger into it here and there, and dropping down a mustard seed, would be thought a penurious, narrow-minded husbandman. The dandelions in the river meadows, and the forget-me-nots along the mountain roads— you see at once they are put to no economy in space. Some seasons, too, our rye comes up here and they're a spear, sole and single like a church spire. It doesn't care to crowd itself where it knows there is such a deal of room. The world is wide, the world is all before us, says the rye. Weeds, too, it is amazing how they spread. No such thing as arresting them, some of our pastures being a sort of Alsatia for the weeds. As for the grass... Every spring it is like Kasus rising of what he calls the peoples. Mountains, too, a regular camp meeting of them. For the same reason, the same all-sufficiency of room, our shadows march and counter-march, going through their various drills and masterly evolutions, like the old imperial guard on the champs de Mars. As for the hills, especially where the roads cross them, the supervisors of our various towns have given notice to all concerned, that they can come and dig them down and cart them off. And never a cent to pay, no more than for the privilege of picking blackberries. The stranger who is buried here, what liberal hearted landed proprietor among us grudges him six feet of rocky pasture? Nevertheless, cheap, after all, as our land is, and much as it is trodden underfoot, I, for one, am proud of it for what it bears, and chiefly for its three great lions the Great Oak, Og Mountain, and My Chimney. Most houses, here, are but one and a half stories high few exceed two. That in which I and my chimney dwell is in width nearly twice its height, from silt to eaves, which accounts for the magnitude of its main content, besides showing that in this house, as in this country at large, there is abundance of space, and to spare for both of us. The frame of the old house is of wood, which but the more sets forth the solidity of the chimney, which is of brick, and as the great wrought nails, binding the clapboards are unknown in these degenerate days, so are the huge bricks in the chimney walls. The architect of the chimney must have had the pyramid of Cheops before him, for, after that famous structure, it seems modelled. only its rate of decrease towards the summit is considerably less, and it is truncated. From the exact middle of the mansion it soars from the cellar, right up through each successive floor, till, four feet square, it breaks water from the ridge pole of the roof, like an anvil-headed whale through the crest of a billow. Most people, though, liken it, in that part, to a raised observatory, massoned up. The reason for its peculiar appearance above the roof touches upon rather delicate ground. How shall I reveal that? For as much as many years ago the original gable roof of the old house had become very leaky, a temporary proprietor hired a band of woodmen, with their huge, cross-cut saws, and went to sawing the old gable roof clean off. Off it went, With all its birds' nests and dormer windows. It was replaced with a modern roof, more fit for a railway woodhouse than an old country gentleman's abode. This operation, raising the structure some fifteen feet, was, in effect upon the chimney, something like the falling of the great spring tides. It left uncommon low water all about the chimney, to abate which appearance, the same person now proceeds to slice fifteen feet off the chimney itself. Actually beheading my royal old chimney, a regicidal act, which, were it not for the palliating fact that he was a poulter by trade, and therefore, hardened to such neck ringings, should send that former proprietor down to posterity in the same cart with Cromwell. Owing to its pyramidal shape, the reduction of the chimney inordinately widened its raised summit. Inordinately, I say, but only in the estimation of such as have no eye to the picturesque. What care I if, unaware that my chimney, As a free citizen of this free land, stands upon an independent basis of its own. People passing it, wonder how such a brick kiln, as they call it, is supported upon mere joists and rafters. What care I? I will give a traveller a cup of switchel, if he want it. But am I bound to supply him with a sweet taste? Men of cultivated minds see, in my old house and chimney, a goodly old elephant and castle. All feeling hearts will sympathize with me in what I am now about to add. The surgical operation, above referred to, necessarily brought into the open air a part of the chimney previously under cover, and intended to remain so, and therefore, not built of what are called weather bricks. In consequence, the chimney, though of a vigorous constitution, suffered not a little, from so naked an exposure, and unable to acclimate itself, ere long began to fail— Showing blotchy symptoms akin to those in measles. Whereupon, travellers, passing my way, would wag their heads, laughing. See that wax nose! How it melts off! But what cared I? The same travellers would travel across the sea to view Kenilworth peeling away, and for a very good reason that of all artists of the picturesque, decay wears the palm, I would say, the ivy. In fact, I've often thought that the proper place for my old chimney is ivied old England. In vain my wife, with what probable ulterior intent will, ere long, appear, solemnly warned me, that unless something were done, and speedily, we should be burnt to the ground, owing to the holes crumbling through the aforesaid blotchy parts, where the chimney joined the roof. Wife, said I, far better that my house should burn down, than that my chimney should be pulled down, though but a few feet. They call it a wax nose, very good. Not for me to tweak the nose of my superior, but at last the man who has a mortgage on the house dropped me a note, reminding me that, if my chimney was allowed to stand in that invalid condition, my policy of insurance would be void. This was a sort of hint not to be neglected. All the world over, the picturesque yields to the pocketesque. The mortgager cared not, but the mortgagee did. So another operation was performed. The wax nose was taken off. And a new one fitted on. Unfortunately for the expression, being put up by a squint eyed mason, who, at the time, had a bad stitch in the same side, the new nose stands a little awry, in the same direction. Of one thing, however, I am proud. The horizontal dimensions of the new part are unreduced. Large as the chimney appears upon the roof, that is nothing to its spaciousness below. At its base in the cellar, it is precisely twelve feet square and hence covers precisely 144 superficial feet. What an appropriation of terra firma for a chimney, and what a huge load for this earth. In fact, it was only because I and my chimney formed no part of his ancient burden that that stout peddler, Atlas of old, was enabled to stand up so bravely under his pack. The dimensions given may, perhaps, seem fabulous. But like those stones at Gilgal, which Joshua set up for a memorial of having passed over Jordan, does not my chimney remain, even unto this day? Very often I go down into my cellar and attentively survey that vast square of masonry. I stand long and ponder over and wonder at it. It has a druidical look, away down in the umbrageous cellar, there whose numerous vaulted passages and far glens of gloom resemble the dark, damp depths of primeval woods. So strongly did this conceit steal over me, so deeply was I penetrated with wonder at the chimney, that one day, when I was a little out of my mind, I now think, getting a spade from the garden, I set to work, digging round the foundation, especially at the corners thereof, obscurely prompted by dreams of striking upon some old, earthen-worn memorial of that bygone day, when, into all this gloom, the light of heaven entered, as the masons laid the foundation stones, Peradventure sweltering under an August sun, or pelted by a March storm. Plying my blunted spade, how vexed was I by that ungracious interruption of a neighbour who, calling to see me upon some business, and being informed that I was below, said I need not be troubled to come up, but he would go down to me, and so, without ceremony, and without my having been forewarned, suddenly discovered me, digging in my cellar. Gold digging, sir? Nay, sir answered I, starting. I was merely—ahem, merely—I say I was merely digging round my chimney. Ah, loosening the soil, to make it grow. Your chimney, sir, you regard as too small, I suppose, needing further development, especially at the top? Sir, said I, throwing down the spade, do not be personal. I and my chimney—personal? Sir, I look upon this chimney less as a pile of masonry than as a personage. It is the king of the house. I am but a suffered and inferior subject. In fact, I would permit no gibes to be cast at either myself or my chimney, and never again did my visitor refer to it in my hearing, without coupling some compliment with the mention. It well deserves a respectful consideration. There it stands, solitary and alone, not a council, of ten flues, but like His Sacred Majesty of Russia, a unit of an autocrat. Even to me, its dimensions, at times, seem incredible. It does not look so big, no, not even in the cellar. By the mere eye, its magnitude can be but imperfectly comprehended, because only one side can be received at one time, and said side can only present 12 feet, linear measure. But then, each other side also is 12 feet long, and the whole obviously forms a square and 12 times 12 is 144. And so, an adequate conception of the magnitude of this chimney is only to be got at by a sort of process in the higher mathematics by a method somewhat akin to those whereby the surprising distances of fixed stars are computed. It need hardly be said that the walls of my house are entirely free from fireplaces. These all congregate in the middle, in the one grand central chimney, upon all four sides of which are hearths, two tiers of hearths, so that when, In the various chambers, my family and guests are warming themselves of a cold winter's night, just before retiring then, though at the time they may not be thinking so, all their faces mutually look towards each other, yeah, all their feet point to one center, and when they go to sleep in their beds, they all sleep round one warm chimney, like so. Many Iroquois Indians, in the woods, round their one heap of embers. And just as the Indians' fire serves, not only to keep them comfortable— but also to keep off wolves, and other savage monsters, so my chimney, by its obvious smoke at top, keeps off prowling burglars from the towns, for what burglar or murderer would dare break into an abode from whose chimney issues such a continual smoke, betokening that if the inmates are not stirring, at least fires are, and in case of an alarm, candles may readily be lighted, to say nothing of muskets. But stately as is the chimney, yea, grand high altar as it is, right worthy for the celebration of high mass before the Pope of Rome, and all his cardinals, yet what is there perfect in this world? Caius Julius Caesar, had he not been so inordinately great, they say that Brutus, Cassius, Antony, and the rest, had been greater. My chimney, were it not so mighty in its magnitude, my chambers had been larger. How often has my wife ruefully told me, that my chimney, like the English aristocracy, casts a contracting shade all round it. She avers that endless domestic inconveniences arise, more particularly from the chimney's stubborn central locality. The grand objection with her is, that it stands midway in the place where a fine entrance hall ought to be. In truth, there is no hall whatever to the house, nothing but a sort of square landing place, as you enter from the wide front door. A roomy enough landing place, I admit, but not attaining to the dignity of a hall. Now, as the front door is precisely in the middle of the front of the house, inwards it faces the chimney. In fact, the opposite wall of the landing place is formed solely by the chimney, and hence owing to the gradual tapering of the chimney, is a little less than 12 feet in width. Climbing the chimney in this part is the principal staircase, which, by three abrupt turns and three minor landing places, mounts to the second floor, where, over the front door, runs a sort of narrow gallery something less than twelve feet long, leading to chambers on either hand. This gallery, of course, is railed, and so, looking down upon the stairs, and all those landing places together, with the main one at bottom, resembles not a little a balcony for musicians, in some jolly old abode, in times Elizabethan. Shall I tell a weakness? I cherish the cobwebs there, and many a time arrest Biddy in the act of brushing them with her broom and have many a quarrel with my wife and daughters about it. Now the ceiling, so to speak, of the place where you enter the house, that ceiling is, in fact, the ceiling of the second floor, not the first. The two floors are made one here, so that ascending this turning stairs, you seem going up into a kind of soaring tower, or lighthouse. At the second landing, midway up the chimney, is a mysterious door, entering to a mysterious closet and here I keep mysterious cordials, of a choice, mysterious flavor, made so by the constant nurturing and subtle ripening of the chimney's gentle heat, distilled through that warm mass of masonry. Better for wines is it than voyages to the Indias. My chimney itself a tropic. A chair by my chimney in a November day is as good for an invalid as a long season spent in Cuba. Often I think how grapes might ripen against my chimney. How my wife's geraniums bud there, but in December. Her eggs, too, can't keep them near the chimney, An account of the hatching. Ah, a warm heart has my chimney. How often my wife was at me about that projected grand entrance hall of hers, which was to be knocked clean through the chimney, from one end of the house to the other, and astonish all guests by its generous amplitude. But, wife, said I, the chimney, consider the chimney, if you demolish the foundation, what is to support the superstructure? Oh, that will rest on the second floor. The truth is, women know next to nothing about the realities of architecture. However, my wife still talked of running her entries and partitions. She spent many long nights elaborating her plans, in imagination building her boasted hall through the chimney, as though its high mightiness were a mere spear of soil Top. At last, I gently reminded her that, little as she might fancy it, the chimney was a fact. A sober, substantial fact, which, in all her plannings, it would be well to take into full consideration. But this was not of much avail. And here, respectfully craving her permission, I must say a few words about this enterprising wife of mine. Though in years nearly old as myself, in spirit she is young as my little sorrel mare, Trigger, that threw me last fall. What is extraordinary, though she comes of a rheumatic family, she is straight as a pine, never has any aches while for me with the sciatica, I am sometimes as crippled up as any old apple tree. But she has not so much as a toothache. As for her hearing, let me enter the house in my dusty boots, and she away up in the attic. And for her sight, Biddy, the housemaid, tells other people's housemaids that her mistress will spy a spot on the dresser straight through the pewter platter, put up on purpose to hide it. Her faculties are alert as her limbs and her senses. No danger of my spouse dying of torpor. The longest night in the year I've known her lie awake, planning her campaign for the morrow. She is a natural projector. The maxim. Whatever is, is right. Is not hers. Her maxim is, whatever is, is wrong, and what is more, must be altered, and what is still more, must be altered right away. Dreadful maxim for the wife of a dozy old dreamer like me, who dote on seventh days as days of rest and out of a sabbatical horror of industry, will, on a weekday go out of my road a quarter of a mile, to avoid the sight of a man at work. That matches are made in heaven, maybe, but my wife would have been just the wife for Peter the Great, or Peter the Piper. How she would have set in order that huge littered empire of the one, and with indefatigable painstaking pick the peck of pickled peppers for the other. But the most wonderful thing is, my wife never thinks of her end. Her youthful incredulity, as to the plain theory, and still plainer fact of death, hardly seems Christian. Advanced in years, as she knows she must be, my wife seems to think that she is to team on, and be inexhaustible forever. She doesn't believe in old age. At that strange promise in the plain of Mamre, my old wife, unlike old Abraham's, would not have jeeringly laughed within herself. Judge how to me, who, sitting in the comfortable shadow of my chimney, smoking my comfortable pipe, with ashes not unwelcome at my feet, and ashes not unwelcome all but in my mouth, and who am thus in a comfortable sort of not unwelcome, though, indeed, ashy enough way, reminded of the ultimate exhaustion even of the most fiery life, judge how to me this unwarrantable vitality in my wife must come, sometimes, it is true, with a moral and a calm, but oftener with a breeze and a ruffle. If the doctrine be true, that in wedlock contraries attract, by how cogent a fatality must I have been drawn to my wife. While spicily impatient of present and past, like a glass of ginger beer she overflows with her schemes, and with like energy as she puts down her foot, puts down her preserves and her pickles, and lives with them in a continual future, or ever full of expectations both from time and space, is ever restless for newspapers, and ravenous for letters." CONTENT WITH THE YEARS THAT ARE GONE, TAKING NO THOUGHT FOR THE MORROW, AND LOOKING FOR NO NEW THING FROM ANY PERSON OR QUARTER WHATEVER, I HAVE NOT A SINGLE SCHEME OR EXPECTATION ON EARTH, SAVE AN UNEQUAL RESISTANCE OF THE UNDUE ENCROACHMENT OF HERS. OLD MYSELF, I TAKE TO OLDNESS IN THINGS, FOR THAT CAUSE MAINLY LOVING OLD MONTAGUE, AND OLD CHEESE, AND OLD WINE, AND ESCHEWING YOUNG PEOPLE, HOT ROLLS, NEW BOOKS, and early potatoes and very fond of my old claw-footed chair, an old club-footed deacon white, my neighbor, and that still nigher old neighbor, my betwisted old grapevine, that of a summer evening leans in his elbow for cozy company at my windowsill, while I, within doors, lean over mine to meet his, and above all, high above all. Am fond of my high-mantled old chimney. But she, out of the infatuate juvenility of hers, takes to nothing but newness for that cause mainly, loving new cider in autumn, and in spring, as if she were own daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, fairly raving after all sorts of salads and spinaches, and more particularly green cucumbers, though all the time nature rebukes such unsuitable young hankerings in so elderly a person. By never permitting such things to agree with her, and has an itch after recently discovered fine prospects, so no. Graveyard be in the background, and also after Swedenborgianism and the spirit-wrapping philosophy, with other new views, alike in things natural and unnatural, and immortally hopeful, is forever making new flowerbeds even on the north side of the house where the bleak mountain wind would scarce allow the wiry weed called hardhack to gain a thorough footing, and on the roadside sets out mere pipe stems of young elms. Though there is no hope of any shade from them, except over the ruins of her great-granddaughter's gravestones, and won't wear caps, but plates her gray hair and takes the ladies' magazine for the fashions, and always buys her new almanac a month before the new year, and rises at dawn, and to the warmest sunset turns a cold shoulder, and still goes on at odd hours with her new course of history, and her French, and her music, and likes a young company, and offers to ride young colts, and sets out young suckers in the orchard, and has a spite against my elbowed old grapevine, and my club-footed old neighbor, and my claw-footed old chair, and above all, high above all, would fain persecute, until death, my high-mantled old chimney. By what perverse magic, I a thousand times think, does such a very autumnal old lady have such a very vernal young soul? When I would remonstrate at times, she spins round on me with, Oh, don't you grumble, old man, she always calls me old man, it's I, young I, that keep you from stagnating. Well, I suppose it is so. Yeah, after all, these things are well-ordered. My wife, as one of her poor relations, good soul, intimates, is the salt of the earth, and none the less the salt of my sea, which otherwise were unwholesome. She is its monsoon, too, blowing a brisk gale over it, in the one steady direction of my chimney. Not insensible of her superior energies, my wife has frequently made me propositions to take upon herself all the responsibilities of my affairs. She is desirous that, domestically, I should abdicate that, renouncing further rule, like the venerable Charles V., I should retire into some sort of monastery. But indeed, the chimney accepted, I have little authority to lay down. By my wife's ingenious application of the principle that certain things belong of right to female jurisdiction, I find myself, through my easy compliances, insensibly stripped by degrees of one masculine prerogative after another. In a dream I go about my fields, a sort of lazy, happy-go-lucky, good-for-nothing, loafing old Lear. Only by some sudden revelation am I reminded who is over me. As year before last, one day seeing in one corner of the premises fresh deposits of mysterious boards and timbers, the oddity of the incident at length begot serious meditation. Wife, said I, whose boards and timbers are those I see near the orchard there? Do you know anything about them, wife? Who put them there? You know I do not like the neighbors to use my land that way. They should ask permission first. She regarded me with a pitying smile. Why, old man, don't you know I am building a new barn? Didn't you know that, old man? This is the poor old lady who was accusing me of tyrannizing over her. To return now to the chimney. Upon being assured of the futility of her proposed hall, so long as the obstacle remained, for a time my wife was for a modified project. But I could never exactly comprehend it. As far as I could see through it, it seemed to involve the general idea of a sort of irregular archway, or elbowed tunnel, which was to penetrate the chimney at some convenient point under the staircase, and carefully avoiding dangerous contact with the fireplaces, and particularly steering clear of the great interior flue, was to conduct the enterprising traveler from the front door all the way into the dining room in the remote rear of the mansion. Doubtless it was a bold stroke of genius, that plan of hers, and so was Nero's when he schemed his grand canal through the Isthmus of Corinth. Nor will I take oath that, had her project been accomplished then, by help of lights hung at judicious intervals through the tunnel, some belt sony or other might have succeeded in future ages in penetrating through the masonry, and actually emerging into the dining room, and once there, it would have been inhospitable treatment of such a traveller to have denied him a recruiting meal. But my bustling wife did not restrict her objections, nor in the end confine her proposed alterations to the first floor. Her ambition was of the mounting order. She ascended with her schemes to the second floor, and so to the attic. Perhaps there was some small ground for her discontent with things as they were. The truth is, there was no regular passageway upstairs or down, unless we again accept that little orchestra gallery before mentioned. And all this was owing to the chimney which my gamesome spouse seemed despitefully to regard as the bully of the house. On all its four sides, nearly all the chambers sidled up to the chimney for the benefit of a fireplace. The chimney would not go to them, they must needs go to it. The consequence was, almost every room, like a philosophical system, was in itself an entry, or passageway to other rooms, and systems of rooms, a whole suite of entries, in fact. Going through the house, You seem to be forever going somewhere, and getting nowhere. It is like losing oneself in the woods, round and round the chimney you go, and if you arrive at all, it is just where you started, and so you begin again, and again get nowhere. Indeed, though I say it not in the way of fault finding at all, never was there so labyrinthine an abode. Guests will tarry with me several weeks and every now and then be anew astonished at some unforeseen apartment. The puzzling nature of the mansion, resulting from the chimney, is peculiarly noticeable in the dining-room, which has no less than nine doors, opening in all directions, and into all sorts of places. A stranger for the first time entering this dining-room, and naturally taking no special heed at which door he entered, will, upon rising to depart, commit the strangest blunders. Such, for instance, as opening the first door that comes handy, and finding himself stealing upstairs by the back passage. Shutting that, he will proceed to another, and be aghast at the cellar yawning at his feet. Trying a third, he surprises the housemaid at her work. In the end, no more relying on his own unaided efforts, he procures a trusty guide in some passing person, and in good time successfully emerges. Perhaps as curious a blunder as any was that of a certain stylish young gentleman, a great exquisite, in whose judicious eyes my daughter Anna had found a special favor. He called upon the young lady one evening, and found her alone in the dining-room at her needlework. He stayed rather late, and after abundance of superfine discourse, all the while retaining his hat and cane, made his profuse adieus, and with repeated graceful bows proceeded to depart, after fashion of courtiers from the queen, and by so doing, opening a door at random, with one hand placed behind, very effectually succeeded in backing himself into a dark pantry." where he carefully shut himself up, wondering there was no light in the entry. After several strange noises as of a cat among the crockery, he reappeared through the same door, looking uncommonly crestfallen, and with a deeply embarrassed air, requested my daughter to designate at which of the nine he should find exit. When the mischievous Anna told me the story, she said it was surprising how unaffected and matter-of-fact the young gentleman's manner was after his reappearance. He was more candid than ever, to be sure, having inadvertently thrust his white kids into an open drawer of Havana sugar, under the impression, probably, that being what they call, a sweet fellow. His route might possibly lie in that direction. Another inconvenience resulting from the chimney is, the bewilderment of a guest in gaining his chamber, many strange doors lying between him and it. To direct him by finger-posts would look rather queer and just as queer in him to be knocking at every door on his route, like London's city guests, the king, at Temple Bar. Now, of all these things and many, many more, my family continually complained. At last my wife came out with her sweeping proposition, in toto to abolish the chimney. What? said I. Abolish the chimney? To take out the backbone of anything, wife, is a hazardous affair. Spines out of backs and chimneys out of houses, are not to be taken like frosted lead pipes from the ground. Besides, added I, the chimney is the one grand permanence of this abode. If undisturbed by innovators, then in future ages, when all the house shall have crumbled from it, this chimney will still survive, a Bunker Hill monument. No, no, wife, I can't abolish my backbone. So said I then. But who is sure of himself, especially an old man? with both wife and daughters ever at his elbow and ear. In time, I was persuaded to think a little better of it, in short, to take the matter into preliminary consideration. At length it came to pass that a master mason, a rough sort of architect, one Mr. Scribe, was summoned to a conference. I formally introduced him to my chimney. A previous introduction from my wife had introduced him to myself. He had been not a little employed by that lady and preparing plans and estimates for some of her extensive operations in drainage. Having, with much ado, exhorted from my spouse the promise that she would leave us to an unmolested survey, I began by leading Mr. Scribe down to the root of the matter, in the cellar. Lamp in hand I descended, for though upstairs it was noon, below it was night. We seemed in the pyramids, and I, with one hand holding my lamp overhead, and with the other pointing out, in the obscurity. The whole mass of the chimney, seemed some Arab guide, showing the cobweb mausoleum of the great god Apis. This is a most remarkable structure, sir, said the master mason, after long contemplating it in silence. A most remarkable structure, sir. Yes, said I complacently. Everyone says so. But large as it appears above the roof, I would not have inferred the magnitude of this foundation, sir. Eyeing it critically. Then taking out his rule, he measured it. Twelve feet square, one hundred and forty-four square feet. Sir, this house would appear to have been built simply for the accommodation of your chimney. Yes, my chimney and me. Tell me candidly now, I added. Would you have such a famous chimney abolished? I wouldn't have it in a house of mine, sir, for a gift, was the reply. It's a losing affair altogether, sir. Do you know, sir, that in retaining this chimney, you are losing, not only one hundred and forty-four square feet of good ground, but likewise a considerable interest upon a considerable principle? How? Look, sir, said he, taking a bit of red chalk from his pocket, and figuring against the whitewashed wall. Twenty times eight is so-and-so, then forty-two times thirty, nine is so-and-so, ain't it, sir? Well, add those together, and subtract this here, then that makes so-and-so. Still chalking away. To be brief, after no small ciphering, Mr. Scribe informed me that my chimney contained, I am ashamed to say how many thousand and odd valuable bricks. No more, said I fidgeting. Pray now, let us have a look above. In that upper zone we made two more circumnavigations for the first and second floors. That done, we stood together at the foot of the stairway by the front door, my hand upon the knob, and Mr. Scribe hat in hand. "'Well, sir,' said he, a sort of feeling his way, and to help himself, fumbling with his hat, "'well, sir, I think it can be done.' "'What, pray, Mr. Scribe, what can be done?' "'Your chimney, sir, it can without rashness be removed, I think. "'I will think of it too, Mr. Scribe.' said I, turning the knob and bowing him towards the open space without. I will think of it, sir. It demands consideration. Much obliged to ye. Good morning, Mr. Scribe. It is all arranged, then, cried my wife with great glee, bursting from the nice room. When will they begin? demanded my daughter Julia. Tomorrow? asked Anna. Patience, patience, my dears, said I. Such a big chimney is not to be abolished in a minute. Next morning it began again. You remember the chimney, said my wife. Wife, said I. It is never out of my house and never out of my mind. But when is Mr. Scribe to begin to pull it down? Asked Anna. Not today, Anna, said I. When then? Demanded Julia, in alarm. Now, if this chimney of mine was, for size, a sort of belfry, for ding-donging at me about it, My wife and daughters were a sort of bells, always chiming together, or taking up each other's melodies at every pause, my wife the key clapper of all. A very sweet ringing, and pealing, and chiming, I confess, but then, the most silvery of bells may, sometimes, dismally toll, as well as merrily play. And as touching the subject in question, it became so now. Perceiving a strange relapse of opposition in me, wife and daughters began a soft and dirge like, melancholy tolling over it at length my wife getting much excited declared to me with pointed finger that so long as that chimney stood she should regard it as the monument of what she called my broken pledge but finding this did not answer the next day she gave me to understand that either she or the chimney must quit the house finding matters coming to such a pass i and my pipe philosophized over them a while and finally concluded between us that little as our hearts went with the plan, yet for peace's sake, I might write out the chimney's death warrant, and while my hand was in, scratch a note to Mr. Scribe. Considering that I, and my chimney, and my pipe, from having been so much together, were three great cronies, the facility with which my pipe consented to a project so fatal to the goodliest of our trio, or rather, the way in which I and my pipe, in secret, conspired together, as it were, Against our unsuspicious old comrade, this may seem rather strange, if not suggestive of sad reflections upon us too. But indeed, we, sons of clay, that is my pipe and I, are no whit better than the rest. Far from us, indeed, to have volunteered the betrayal of our crony. We are of a peaceable nature, too. But that love of peace it was which made us false to a mutual friend, as soon as his cause demanded a vigorous vindication. But I rejoiced to add, that better and braver thoughts soon returned, as will now briefly be set forth. To my note, Mr. Scribe replied in person. Once more we made a survey, mainly now with a view to a pecuniary estimate. I will do it for five hundred dollars, said Mr. Scribe at last, again hat in hand. Very well, Mr. Scribe, I will think of it, replied I, again bowing him to the door. Not unvexed by this, for the second time. Unexpected response, again he withdrew, and from my wife and daughters again burst the old exclamations. The truth is, resolved how I would, at the last pinch I and my chimney could not be parted. So Holofernes will have his way, never mind whose heart breaks for it, said my wife next morning, at breakfast, in that half didactic, half reproachful way of hers, which is harder to bear than her most energetic assault. Holofernes, too, is with her a pet name for any fell domestic despot. So, whenever, against her most ambitious innovations, those which saw me quite across the grain, I, as in the present instance, stand with however little steadfastness on the defense, she is sure to call me Holofernes, and ten to one takes the first opportunity to read aloud, with a suppressed emphasis, of an evening, the first newspaper paragraph about some tyrannic day-laborer. After being for many years the Caligula of his family, ends by beating his long-suffering spouse to death, with a garret door wrenched off its hinges, and then, pitching his little innocence out of the window, suicidally turns inward towards the broken wall scored with the butcher's and baker's bills, and so rushes headlong to his dreadful account. Nevertheless, for a few days, not a little to my surprise, I heard no further reproaches. An intense calm pervaded my wife, but beneath which, as in the sea, there was no knowing what portentous movements might be going on. She frequently went abroad, and in a direction which I thought not unsuspicious, namely, in the direction of New Petra, a griffin-like house of wood and stucco, in the highest style of ornamental art, graced with four chimneys in the form of erect dragons spouting smoke from their nostrils, the elegant modern residence of Mr. Scribe, which he had built for the purpose of a standing advertisement. Not more of his taste as an architect, than his solidity, as a master mason. At last smoking my pipe one morning, I heard a rap at the door, and my wife, with an air unusually quiet for her brought me a note. As I have no correspondence except Solomon, with whom in his sentiments, at least, I entirely correspond, the note occasioned me some little surprise, which was not dismissed upon reading the following. N.E.W. Pietra, April 1st. Sir, during my last examination of your chimney, possibly you may have noted that I frequently applied my rule to it in a manner apparently unnecessary. Possibly, also, at the same time, you might have observed in me more or less of perplexity, to which, however, I refrained from giving any verbal expression. I now feel it obligatory upon me to inform you of what was then but a dim suspicion, and as such would have been unwise to give utterance to, but which now— from various subsequent calculations assuming no little probability, it may be important that you should not remain in further ignorance of. It is my solemn duty to warn you, sir, that there is architectural cause to conjecture that somewhere concealed in your chimney is a reserved space, hermetically closed, in short, a secret chamber, or rather closet. How long it has been there, it is for me impossible to say. What it contains is hid, with itself, in darkness. But probably a secret closet would not have been contrived except for some extraordinary object. Whether for the concealment of treasure, or for what other purpose, may be left to those better acquainted with the history of the house to guess. But enough, in making this disclosure, sir, my conscience is eased. Whatever step you choose to take upon it, is of course a matter of indifference to me, though, I confess, as respects the character of the closet, I cannot but share in a natural curiosity trusting that you may be guided aright, in determining whether it is Christian-like knowingly to reside in a house, hidden in which is a secret closet. I remain, with much respect, yours very humbly, HRMS Scribe. Cribe. My first thought upon reading this note was, not of the alleged mystery of manner to which, at the outset, it alluded for none such had I at all observed in the Master Mason during his surveys, but of my late kinsman, Captain Julian Decker's long as shipmaster and merchant in the Indian trade, who, about thirty years ago, and at the ripe age of ninety, died a bachelor, and in this very house, which he had built, he was supposed to have retired into this country with a large fortune. But to the general surprise, after being at great cost in building himself this mansion, he settled down into a sedate, reserved and inexpensive old age, which by the neighbors was thought all the better for his heirs. But lo! Upon opening the will, his property was found to consist but of the house and grounds, and some ten thousand dollars in stocks, but the place, being found heavily mortgaged, was in consequence sold. Gossip had its day, and left the grass quietly to creep over the captain's grave, where he still slumbers in a privacy as unmolested as if the billows of the Indian Ocean, instead of the billows of inland verdure, rolled over him. Still, I remembered long ago, hearing strange solutions whispered by the country people for the mystery involving his will, and by reflex, himself, and that, too, as well in conscience as purse. But people who could circulate the report, which they did, that Captain Julian Dickers had, in his day, been a Borneo pirate, surely were not worthy of credence in their collateral notions. It is queer what wild whimsies of rumors will, like toadstools, spring up about any eccentric stranger. Who settling down among a rustic population keeps quietly to himself. With some, inoffensiveness would seem a prime cause of offence. But what chiefly had led me to scout at these rumours, particularly as referring to concealed treasure, was the circumstance that the stranger, the same who raised the roof and the chimney, into whose hands the estate had passed on my kinsman's death, was of that sort of character that had there been the least ground for those reports, he would speedily have tested them by tearing down and rummaging the walls. Nevertheless, the note of Mr. Scribe, so strangely recalling the memory of my kinsman, very naturally chimed in with what had been mysterious, or at least unexplained, about him. Vague flashings of ingots united in my mind with vague gleamings of skulls. But the first cool thoughts soon dismissed such chimeras, and with a calm smile I turned towards my wife, who, meantime, had been sitting nearby, "'Impatient enough, I dare say, to know who could have taken it into his head to write me a letter. "'Well, old man,' said she, "'who is it from, and what is it about?' "'Read it, wife,' said I, handing it. "'Read it she did, and then, such an explosion! I will not pretend to describe her emotions, or repeat her expressions, enough that my daughters were quickly called in to share the excitement.' although they had never dreamed of such a revelation as Mr. Scribes, yet upon the first suggestion they instinctively saw the extreme likelihood of it. In corroboration, they cited first my kinsman, and second, my chimney, alleging that the profound mystery involving the former, and the equally profound masonry involving the latter, though both acknowledged facts, were alike preposterous on any other supposition than the secret closet. But all this time I was quietly thinking to myself, Could it be hidden from me that my credulity in this instance would operate very favorably to a certain plan of theirs? How to get to the secret closet, or how to have any certainty about it at all, without making such fell work with my chimney as to render its set destruction superfluous? That my wife wished to get rid of the chimney, it needed no reflection to show, and that Mr. Scribe, for all his pretended disinterestedness, was not opposed to pocketing five hundred dollars by the operation, seemed equally evident. That my wife had, in secret, laid heads together with Mr. Scribe, I at present refrain from affirming. But when I consider her enmity against my chimney, and the steadiness with which at the last she is wont to carry out her schemes, if by hook or crook she can, especially after having been once baffled, why, I scarcely knew at what step of hers to be surprised. Of one thing only was I resolved that I and my chimney should not budge. In vain all protests. Next morning I went out into the road, where I had noticed a diabolical looking old gander that, for its dowdy exploits in the way of scratching into forbidden enclosures, had been rewarded by its master with a portentous, four pronged, wooden decoration, in the shape of a collar of the Order of the Garat. This gander I cornered and rummaging out its stiffest quill, plucked it, took it home, and making a stiff pen, inscribed the following stiff note. See him ASID, April 2nd. Mr. Scribe. S. I. R., for your conjecture, we return you our joint thanks and compliments, and beg leave to assure you, that we shall remain, very faithfully, the same, I and my see him nay. Of course, for this epistle we had to endure some pretty sharp raps. But having at last explicitly understood from me that Mr. Scribe's note had not altered my mind one jot, my wife, to move me, among other things said, that if she remembered aright, There was a statute placing the keeping in private of secret closets on the same unlawful footing with the keeping of gunpowder. But it had no effect. A few days after, my spouse changed her key. It was nearly midnight, and all were in bed but ourselves, who sat up, one in each chimney corner, she, needles in hand, indefatigably knitting a sock, I, pipe in mouth, indolently weaving my vapors. It was one of the first of the chill nights in autumn. There was a fire on the hearth, burning low. The air without was torpid and heavy, the wood, by an oversight, of the sort called soggy. Do look at the chimney, she began. Can't you see that something must be in it? Yes, wife. Truly there is smoke in the chimney, as in Mr. Scribe's note. Smoke? Yes, indeed, and in my eyes, too. How you two wicked old sinners do smoke, this wicked old chimney in you. Wife said I. I and my chimney like to have a quiet smoke together, it is true, but we don't like to be called names. Now, dear old man, said she, softening down, and a little shifting the subject, when you think of that old kinsman of yours, you know there must be a secret closet in this chimney. Secret ash hole, wife, why don't you have it? Yes, I dare say there is a secret ash hole in the chimney, for where do all the ashes go to that drop down the queer hole yonder? I know where they go to. I've been there almost as many times as the cat. What devil, wife, prompted you to crawl into the ash hole? Don't you know that S.T. Dunstan's devil emerged from the ash hole? You will get your death one of these days, exploring all about as you do. But supposing there be a secret closet, what then? What then? Why what should be in a secret closet but? Dry bones, wife, broken eye with a puff, while the sociable old chimney broken with another. There again. Oh, how this wretched old chimney smokes. Wiping her eyes with her handkerchief. I've no doubt the reason it smokes so is, because that secret closet interferes with the flue. Do see, too, how the jams here keep settling, and it's downhill all the way from the door to this hearth. This horrid old chimney will fall on our heads yet. Depend upon it, old man. Yes, wife, I do depend on it. Yes, indeed, I place every dependence on my chimney as for its settling I like it. I too am settling, you know, in my gate. I and my chimney are settling together, and shall keep settling, too, till, as in a great feather bed, we shall both have settled away clean out of sight. But this secret oven, I mean, secret closet of yours, wife, where exactly do you suppose that secret closet is? That is for Mr. Scribe to say. But suppose he cannot say exactly, what, then? Why then he can prove, I am sure, that it must be somewhere or other in this horrid old chimney. And if he can't prove that, what then? Why then, old man, with a stately air, I shall say little more about it. Agreed, wife, returned I, knocking my pipe-bowl against the jam. And now, tomorrow I will for a third time send for Mr. Scribe. Wife, the sciatica takes me, be so good as to put this pipe on the mantel if you get the stepladder for me, I will. This shocking old chimney, this abominable old-fashioned old chimney's mantles are so high, I can't reach them. No opportunity, however trivial, was overlooked for a subordinate fling at the pile. Here, by way of introduction, it should be mentioned, that besides the fireplaces all round it, the chimney was, in the most haphazard way, excavated on each floor for certain curious out-of-the-way cupboards and closets— of all sorts and sizes, clinging here and there, like nests in the crotches of some old oak. On the second floor these closets were by far the most irregular and numerous. And yet this should hardly have been so, since the theory of the chimney was, that it pyramidically diminished as it ascended. The abridgment of its square on the roof was obvious enough, and it was supposed that the reduction must be methodically graduated from bottom to top. Mr. Scribe, said I when, the next day, with an eager aspect, that individual again came. My object in sending for you this morning is, not to arrange for the demolition of my chimney, nor to have any particular conversation about it, but simply to allow you every reasonable facility for verifying, if you can, the conjecture communicated in your note. Though in secret not a little crestfallen, it may be, by my phlegmatic reception, so different from what he had looked for. With much apparent alacrity he commenced the survey. Throwing open the cupboards on the first floor, and peering into the closets on the second, measuring one within, and then comparing that measurement with the measurement without. Removing the fireboards, he would gaze up the flues. But no sign of the hidden work yet. Now, on the second floor the rooms were the most rambling conceivable. They, as it were, dovetailed into each other. They were of all shapes, not one mathematically square room among them all a peculiarity which by the master mason had not been unobserved. With a significant, not to say portentous expression, he took a circuit of the chimney, measuring the area of each room around it, then going downstairs, and out of doors, he measured the entire ground area, then compared the sum total of the areas of all the rooms on the second floor with the ground area, then, returning to me in no small excitement, Announced that there was a difference of no less than two hundred and odd square feet. Room enough, in all conscience, for a secret closet. But Mr. Scribe, said I stroking my chin. Have you allowed for the walls, both main and sectional? They take up some space, you know. Ah, I had forgotten that. Tapping his forehead. But, still ciphering on his paper. That will not make up the deficiency. But Mr. Scribe... Have you allowed for the recesses of so many fireplaces on a floor, and for the firewalls, and the flues? In short, Mr. Scribe, have you allowed for the legitimate chimney itself, some one hundred and forty-four square feet, or thereabouts, Mr. Scribe? How unaccountable! That slipped my mind, too. Did it indeed, Mr. Scribe? He faltered a little, and burst forthwith. But we must now allow one hundred and forty-four square feet for the legitimate chimney. My position is that within those undue limits the secret closet is contained. Eyed him in silence a moment, then spoke. Your survey is concluded, Mr. Scribe. Be so good now as to lay your finger upon the exact part of the chimney wall where you believe this secret closet to be. Or would a witch hazel wand assist you, Mr. Scribe? No, sir, but a crowbar would. He, with temper, rejoined. Here, now, thought I to myself, the cat leaps out of the bag. I looked at him with a calm glance, under which he seemed somewhat uneasy. More than ever now I suspected a plot. I remembered what my wife had said about abiding by the decision of Mr. Scribe. In a bland way, I resolved to buy up the decision of Mr. Scribe. Sir, said I, really, I am much obliged to you for this survey. It has quite set my mind at rest. And no doubt you, too, Mr. Scribe, must feel much relieved. Sir? I added, you have made three visits to the chimney. With a businessman, time is money. Here are fifty dollars, Mr. Scribe. Nay, take it. You have earned it. Your opinion is worth it. And by the way, as he modestly received the money, have you any objections to give me a little certificate, something, say, like a steamboat certificate, certifying that you, a competent surveyor, have surveyed my chimney, and found no reason to believe any unsoundness, in short, any, any secret closet in it. Would you be so kind, Mr. Scribe? But, but, sir, stammered he with honest hesitation. Here, here are pen and paper, said I, with entire assurance. Enough. That evening I had the certificate framed and hung over the dining-room fireplace, trusting that the continual sight of it would forever put at rest at once the dreams and stratagems of my household but no. Inveterately bent upon the extirpation of that noble old chimney, still to this day my wife goes about it, with my daughter Anna's geological hammer, tapping the wall all over, and then holding her ear against it, as I have seen the physicians of life insurance companies tap a man's chest, and then incline over for the echo. Sometimes of nights she almost frightens one, going about on this phantom errand, and still following the sepulchral response of the chimney, round and round, as if it were leading her to the threshold of the secret closet. How hollow it sounds, she will hollowly cry. Yes, I declare, with an emphatic tap. There is a secret closet here. Here, in this very spot. Hark! How hollow! Sha! Wife, of course it is hollow. Who ever heard of a solid chimney? But nothing avails. And my daughters take after not me, but their mother. Sometimes all three abandon the theory of the secret closet and return to the genuine ground of attack, the unsightliness of so cumbrous a pile, with comments upon the great addition of room to be gained by its demolition, and the fine effect of the projected grand hall, and the convenience resulting from the collateral running in one direction and another of their various partitions. Not more ruthlessly did the three powers partition away per Poland, than my wife and daughters would fain partition away my chimney. But seeing that, despite all, I and my chimney still smoke our pipes, my wife reoccupies the ground of the secret closet, enlarging upon what wonders are there, and what a shame it is, not to seek it out and explore it. Wife, said I, upon one of these occasions, why speak more of that secret closet, when there before you hangs contrary testimony of a master mason, elected by yourself to decide? Besides, even if there were a secret closet, secret it should remain and secret it shall. Yes, wife, here for once I must say my say. Infinite sad mischief has resulted from the profane bursting open of secret recesses. Though standing in the heart of this house, though hitherto we have all nestled about it, unsuspicious of aught hidden within, this chimney may or may not have a secret closet. But if it have, it is my kinsman's. To break into that wall, would be to break into his breast.' And that wall-breaking wish of Momus I account the wish of a church-robbing gossip and knave. Yes, wife, a vile eavesdropping varlet was Momus. Moses? Mumps? Stuff with your mumps and Moses? The truth is, my wife, like all the rest of the world, cares not a fig for philosophical jabber. In dearth of other philosophical companionship, I and my chimney have to smoke and philosophize together. And sitting up so late as we do at it. A mighty smoke it is that we two smoky old philosophers make but my spouse who likes the smoke of my tobacco as little as she does that of the soot carries on her war against both i live in continual dread lest like the golden bowl the pipes of me and my chimney shall yet be broken to stay that mad project of my wife's not answers or rather she herself is incessantly answering incessantly besetting me with her terrible alacrity for improvement which is a softer name for destruction. Scarce a day I do not find her with her tape measure, measuring for her grand hall, while Anna holds a yardstick on one side, and Julia looks approvingly on from the other. Mysterious intimations appear in the nearest village paper, signed. Claude, to the effect that a certain structure, standing on a certain hill, is a sad blemish to an otherwise lovely landscape. Anonymous letters arrive, threatening me with I know not what, unless I remove my chimney. Is it my wife, too, or who, that sets up the neighbors to badgering me on the same subject, and hinting to me that my chimney, like a huge elm, absorbs all moisture from my garden? At night, also, my wife will start us from sleep, professing to hear ghostly noises from the secret closet. Assailed on all sides, and in all ways, small peace have I and my chimney. Were it not for the baggage, we would together pack up and remove from the country. What narrow escapes have been ours. Once I found in a drawer a whole portfolio of plans and estimates. Another time, upon returning after a day's absence, I discovered my wife standing before the chimney in earnest conversation with a person whom I at once recognized as a meddlesome architectural reformer, who, because he had no gift for putting up anything was ever intent upon pulling them down, in various parts of the country, having prevailed upon half witted old folks to destroy their old fashioned houses, particularly the chimneys. But worst of all was, that time I unexpectedly returned at early morning from a visit to the city, and upon approaching the house, narrowly escaped three brickbats which fell, from high aloft, at my feet. Glancing up, what was my horror to see three savages, in blue jean overalls, in the very act of commencing the long threatened attack. I, indeed, thinking of those three brickbats, I and my chimney have had narrow escapes. It is now some seven years since I have stirred from my home. My city friends all wonder why I don't come to see them, as in former times. They think I am getting sour and unsocial. Some say that I have become a sort of mossy old misanthrope, while all the time the fact is, I am simply standing guard over my mossy old chimney, for it is resolved between me and my chimney that I and my chimney will never surrender.